You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Amen. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Happy Mother's Day, mothers. It's uh, such an honor to uh, open the Word of God together today on uh, Mother's Day. And uh, before we get into that, we're going to be 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verse 10 today, so you can turn with me there uh, while I give uh, our Mother's Day, uh, uh, mothers a shout out this morning. Uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, oh, sorry, 1, verse 10. And if you don't have a Bible, put your hand up. We're actually more than happy to get one, a copy of God's Word into your hands. But I just want to say, mothers, we're so thankful for you this morning. And uh, I know that, yes, you can clap for that. We know that you have one of the toughest jobs and sometimes one of the most thankless jobs. And so we want you today to know that we as a church family, we we cherish you, we value you, and uh, you are deeply loved today. When was the last time, moms, you had a round of applause uh, for doing laundry? (laughs) When was the last time you had a round of applause for making supper? Probably not very often. So why don't we give our moms a round of applause today out of appreciation for who they are? How's that feel, moms? There you go. Isn't it true we take our moms for granted sometimes, isn't it? As much as we want to let our moms know that they're uh, valued and prayed for, I also recognize that Mother's Day is sometimes a hard day for many. Uh, Some of you are mourning the loss of your mom, and so we want you to know that just as we pray for our moms, we're praying for you this morning. Uh, Some of you uh, grew up without a very good mom, and so it's a hard day. You kind of lament what you wish you would have had. Uh, Know today that you're loved and valued as well. We pray for you. Some of you wish you could have been a mom, and God had other plans, and uh, we get that. These are hard days for some of you, and so uh, for all of you, we want you to know that God doesn't value you any less because maybe you're in a harder place than somebody else, and we want you to know today that you are deeply, deeply loved by God. No matter who you are as a woman today, you are deeply loved and cherished by God. And we as a church family truly, uh, truly want to uh, elevate you today too and and tell you how much uh, we love you as well. And so happy Mother's Day to all of you uh, in one way, shape, or form uh, to the glory of God. Uh, Why don't we, before we get into the word, just pray. And uh, it's an honor as a pastor to pray for uh, you on a regular basis. And uh, sometimes we just want to stop in a service and have a bit of a different sort of focus and pray. So I just want to pray for our moms today and for all the people, I just all the ladies in our church, I just kind of refer to different, different segments of our congregation. And so you pray with me as we uh, start our service. And obviously we want to pray that God would uh, open his, our eyes to see the truth of his word this morning as well. So uh, let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you uh, today for the honor that we have to worship you above all else. Thank you, God, that we can have the freedom in this country to come in and sing our hearts out to the glory of God. Father, you are the greatest in the whole universe, and Father, you're the most wonderful thing that's ever happened to our lives, uh, to know your son and to to have eternal life and a relationship with you, oh God. God, thank you for this morning that we can come and worship you. God, I thank you this morning for our moms. I think back even to my own life, what an influence my mom was, and and how she prayed me into the faith, and how I I wouldn't be the man I am today without a godly mom. Thank you for the godly moms that are represented in our congregation. God, I know that they feel inadequate. I know oftentimes they they feel they fall short, but we can see them daily striving to honor you and, and daily doing their best to raise up their kids in the ways of you. God, I pray today that they would simply feel loved and cherished and valued and honored. God, would they, every mom in this place, feel that they are supported and they are loved 
loved by their church family and their, and their, and their family at home. God, I pray for those today that are in this room that are in maybe a different spot and Mother's Day brings painful memories and sad memories. For those mourning the loss of their mom, Lord, I pray that you'd be the God of all comfort. Father, I pray that you'd minister to them in ways today that they can't even imagine. May they, may they turn to you, oh God, as their hope of, their source of hope and encouragement and sustenance. And God, be their everything today. For those today morning, the fact that they maybe never had a great mom, uh, Lord, I pray that they would look beyond this this earth, and they see you, oh God, as, as uh, the eternal parent that loves them better than any parent here on earth could ever love them. Father, I pray that you'd minister to their souls today as well, and, and strengthen them today, oh God, and, and, and wrap your arms around them, let them know that they are loved. Father, I pray for the group of women in here that so long to be a mom, and yet you had different plans in your sovereignty and in your goodness. Father, I pray for them this morning that they would realize, God, that they are not less than because you had a different plan, but God, they are just as loved and cherished as anybody else in this world. Father, I pray that they wouldn't look at what they don't have, but Father, they look at what they do have in Jesus Christ and how you've blessed them abundantly uh, in so many different ways. And Father, would they also know that they are uh, cherished and loved by their uh, church family and their family as well. Father, in all these things, uh, we uh, lift up our women to you. Uh, so thankful for them, Lord. Our churches definitely wouldn't be the same without them, and we need them in our lives. Uh, God, today as we open up your word, I pray that you would teach us uh, what it is to live out the one another's. God, I pray you teach us specifically what it is to live in unity with one another, in harmony with one another, at peace with one another. And Lord, may we be a church that exemplifies Jesus Christ, not just in the way we sing, not just in the, in the way we preach, but in the way we live our lives daily for the glory of God. Help us in these things, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, keeping on the theme of Mother's Day, I did a little research uh, this week to find out what mothers really want on Mother's Day. And uh, you'd be surprised what mothers want. I'm thinking like a box of chocolates or flowers and that kind of thing. And yet, survey, the survey I read says, here's what mothers, number one thing mothers want on Mother's Day, get this, is a nap. I get that. I can see that. Sleep is the number one thing uh, that mothers want on Mother's Day. Second thing on the list was a spa day. Hopefully not going to happen today, but maybe someday, right? Third thing was a, a good day out with their family and friends. Just a good family outing was a, the, the top three things, a nap, a spa day, and family day. And yet, as I thought about that, I was like, you know, that's what the world wants, but I think every, every mom wants something even deeper than those things on Mother's Day. You know what I think every mom wants? More than those three top threes, I think every mom wants this, not just on Mother's Day, but on every day. They want just to have family, harmony, and peace and unity. Am I right, moms? Because who cares if you have a nap and you wake up to chaos in the house, right? Who cares if you have a spa day and you have a, a family day, you come home and no one likes each other and everyone's bickering and fighting and who cares about that stuff? All you really want is peace and harmony in your house. That is the greatest gift you could ever have. I see some moms nodding with kind of like, a, speak it, preacher, right? It's true, and I think that heart of a mom is just a reflection of the heart of God for what God wants for his church family too, specifically to talk about the one another's. Yes, God wants us to love him with all of our heart. He wants us to obey him, and he wants us to share him with others, but more than anything as a church family, you know what God wants? He wants us to get along and live in peace and harmony with each other. Here's the one another we're going to focus on this morning. 
being together in Christ. Listen to some of the verses that God gives us in his word when referring to getting along or walking in harmony with each other as a body of believers. Romans 12, 16, simply put, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. 1 Peter 3, 8, finally, all of you have unity, unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Then we get to 1 Corinthians 1.10, and this is the verse we're going to camp on today. It kind of brings it all into cohesion together this morning. It says this. Here's God's call for us as a church. We think about one another's. I appeal to you, brothers. Paul, writing the church at Corinth, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. You can put in brackets with one another that there may be no divisions among you, but that you might be united in the same mind and the same judgment. 30% of the one another's or one third of the times the one another's are used in the scriptures revolve around this theme, unity. Unity. Just if my people could just walk in harmony, they would know the fullness of joy in their lives and in their church, and the world would see the glory of Jesus Christ in such a real way. Let's start with this this morning as we think about being together in Christ. Togetherness is God's design for the church. We see that here in 1 Corinthians 1.10. Togetherness is God's design for the church. This is a big conference in the United States. It's called the T for G, Together for the Gospel. It's when a group of like-minded people get together and, and worship and study and, 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 and have a conference together. Well, that's great. And yet here's what God's design for the church is every day, not just once every couple years. It's together, not just for the gospel, but together in Christ. This is what God wants for your life and my life. Here's what Paul says to the Corinthian church. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. It's interesting that the early church, we sometimes think, oh, if we could only be in the times of the early church, if we could only be like the early church, it would have been so sweet, it would have been awesome, it would have been perfect. Yeah, look at the scriptures. The early church didn't have the immunity conch for strife and struggle. The Corinthian church is one of those churches that they are actually plagued with all these little divisions that were happening within the church. People started to follow certain teachers. Some followed Paul, some followed Apollos, and, and they started thinking that we're better than you are because of who we follow and how he teaches and the, maybe the philosophy he has, and so causing little divisions with spiritual pride. Some of the other things that Paul was addressing when he wrote this was some of the things that were dividing the church, questions regarding spiritual gifts and marriage and food offered to idols and even the resurrection. Things that can easily come in and cause division within the church. And so, and so Paul, right away in chapter one, just says it like, hey, I'm writing to you partly to keep you on track and to make sure none of these things actually rip you apart. Look what he says here. He appeals, verse, start at verse 10, I appeal to you. 
When Paul says, I appeal to you, he's not like, hey, if you're thinking of like, you got nothing to do today, why don't you listen up? No, this is like, this is like an urgent thing. The word appeal means to call or beseech or exhort. Didn't we just study this a, minute, a few weeks ago? Encouragement? It's the exact same word. To appeal, I want to encourage you, I want to appeal to you with, with urgency, like, like this is important for your life and for the church. Actually, that word uh, appeal, uh, associated with that is exhort. We talked this a few weeks ago, so let me remind you what exhort means. It comes from the Greek word uh, parakaleo. And it actually, the verb is, is a root of helper or advocate. And so Paul's saying, hey, church, I want to come alongside and help you. I want to advocate to you something that's really important, that you stick together. I want to help you get along. Look at the next verse. I appeal to you. What does he call the church? Brothers. I appeal to you, this is an urgent thing, I appeal to you, brothers. Remember who Paul was? Paul had some apostolic authority, didn't he? He, he could like, hey guys, like, like I'm coming, I'm playing my apostle card. You have no choice, listen up, I'm coming down heavy. But he's not doing it in this context. He's saying, brothers, 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 I'm coming to you as a brother. He's kind of like, the, like gather around, brothers, let's put our arms around each other. Let's remember the whole purpose of why God's called us together and what's important. It's not a harsh statement at this point. It's more of a call together by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. See this? By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, not because Paul thinks this is a good idea and he's like, man, I planted this church and you've got to stay together so that my name looks good. That's not why Paul's saying this. He hasn't read the latest book on organizational leadership and realized that, man, a church can't go forward without unity. No, he's appealing, why, to us? By the name of Jesus Christ. Hey, guys, you're together by the name of Jesus Christ. It's because of Jesus' name. The one who has saved you and the one who secures you and the one who draws you to fellowship with himself, but not just with himself, but with each other, with the family of God. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting as we look at the world, what draws people together? Common interest, right? Sports teams, why are they so close together? Because they love that sport that they're playing. And, and drama clubs, why? Because of drama or the band, it's music or the motorcycle club. Why are motorcycle clubs, what, what, what unites them? Really, people from all different walks and backgrounds, what, what unites them? The love of a motorcycle. The love of a bike. Yet we as believers, what draws us together? Not the love of a sport or a band or, or a motorcycle. What draws us together? He's reminding them it's by the name of Jesus Christ. Because we have Jesus, we're united with, with something stronger than anything the world has. Because our, our commonality is a love for the one who gave us everything for us. Because our eyes are fixed not on us anymore, but on Jesus. And so he's saying, hey, by the name of Jesus, don't forget your family. By the name of Jesus Christ, don't forget why Jesus called us together. It wasn't just to accomplish a mission. It was also so that we could be family together. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, you've been adopted, all of you, if you're saved today as sons and daughters of the living God. How are we adopted? By Jesus Christ, by faith in Jesus Christ. 
Ephesians 2.19, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. This is all revolving around Jesus. This whole church thing is because of Jesus, by the name of Jesus. And this is what unites us together with such deep bonds, even deeper than family. By the name of Jesus, why are families, how do, why do families hold together? Well, partly because they look alike, right? And you just can't escape it. Yeah, they're mine. I can't deny that. Partly because of the commonality of the family name. That's what holds us together, family name. Partly because we have the same blood flowing through our veins. With believers, though, it's, it's deeper than even f- the, the physical family we have. It's a spiritual family that, that is Jesus Christ, the head. The Holy Spirit flows through each one of us deeper than blood. And God calls us together. Do you realize a spiritual family should be the deepest bond that you have on earth because of the reality of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit? Tim Keller says this, our bond with others in Christ should even be stronger than our relationship to other members of our own racial and national groups. I appeal to you Brothers and sisters, because we're all part of the family of God by the Lord Jesus Christ, the name of Jesus is the glue that holds us together. And so do this. Here's the call to live it out. It's a threefold call. Look what it says. Agree. May there be no divisions. And may you be united. Agree together. To agree means simply this. It means that we speak the same thing, to be on the same page, to march in unity. That's what it means to agree. It's not just a token nod of, yeah, I'll agree with you. It's like I'm making a dedicated effort here to stay on the same page with other believers, and we're going to march together in agreement in unity. One of the things I like watching is uh, college sports games, and the halftime show is pretty cool on college sports games because they have all these great big bands down in the States. And man, to watch those bands do their marches is amazing, right? Because they're all marching in agreement. They're watching the conductor. They've got the play, and they're all walking in agreement together that they want to perform this piece to the best of their ability. The other side of that, watching the great performances, is watching the blooper clips of some of those bands on YouTube after. When one or two people get out of agreement and decide to do their own thing, and people are tripping over each other, and the baritones are flipping over the tubas, and those are pretty fun to watch. The point is, is that we're all to be like the marching band, walking in agreement with one another on the page of God with no divisions, it says. Let there be no divisions among you. What about little, little, teeny, tiny ones? Let there be how many? No divisions among you. When I first read that word division, I think immediately of, of the Trump wall that's apparently going up between Mexico and the United States. You know, it's going to make this great big division. You know, those little divisions we have with relationships where it's like, well, I don't like them anymore. They did something to offend me, and I'm going to turn my back on them. There's going to be a division between us. But, but if you study the word division, it, it means something much deeper than that. To divide means to rip out, to split, to tear and it occurs in connection with division in parts of the body or parts of even plants. And so it's not this idea of having a division between you. It's having this idea of, of ripping something apart. That's division. It'd be, it'd be like uh, 
having a steak and how are we going to divide this steak? We're going to have to cut it up and rip it apart to make sure everyone gets their piece. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I'd be bored sometimes, and I'd find a little flower in the garden. I'd just sort of sit there and just start pulling it apart. You ever did that when you were a kid? Petal by petal? So you just got the stem, and then you rip that up too, and then you walk away because you're done. You have nothing else to do. That's the kind of the picture we're getting here for division rather than just a little, I got a little beef, no, no, I got a little wall. No, it's like, like, don't let anything rip the body apart. You, you know, a little more graphic, thinking rip the body apart. You hear these people who get dismembered in accidents and what a horrible tragedy that is. You're like, oh, oh, oh. That's how God sees it when the body of believers has these things that they disagree with or cause contention and they start seeing these things rip the body apart. That's pretty intense, isn't it? That's the the cringing and the pain that God sees. He sees his family go different directions because of preferences or whatever else. It says, let there be no division among you. Let nothing rip you apart, this precious body of believers that Jesus died for. Look at the next one. But that you may be united. That you may be united. United means to come together, to be combined, to get after God's purposes together for our lives, like a united effort or united family, but be united. Be together in this church. Remember the brotherly thing? Come on, guys, like be together. The world's against you. Be together. It's all you got in this world that's so antagonistic to Jesus and believers. You gotta be together. You have the common mission, the common vision. Do it together. When I think of being united, I think of the three-legged races in school. Remember when someone would tie your leg to somebody else? You're like, oh, this is gonna be fun, right? Usually, I'm, me with someone tall, you're like, how are we gonna do this? You tie your legs together, you look like arm in arm, like, all right, buddy, like, we got no choices, let's do this, right, let's figure it out, like, what do you do? You fight it through together, one of you falls down, the other one falls on top of them, then you figure out how to get it back up, and, all right, one, two, one, two, we're going to do this, eyes on the finish line, can't be untied until you're done, that's the way it is with believers. Like, let's be united on the goal and on the focus of what this life is all about and what the mission is in Jesus Christ. That's why he says be on the same mind. It means get your beliefs together. Make sure they fit together, aiming for Christ, aiming for being, to be one in hopes and dreams and goals and focus. Be one in the same mind and be one in the same judgment. Judgment being disposition or will according to the will of God. This is God's heart for the church. Harmony pleases the heart of God. This is what God calls us to as a church. Just like a mother wants more than anything their family to be together, so does God want us as a church to be walking in unity together with one another. This is what brings sweet melody to the ears of God. It's easy to forget this in the church, isn't it? said it before in this whole series, we live in such an individualistic mindset within our culture. It's about me, it's about me, it's about me. And yet God says it's not about you. Once you're 
been adopted as family. It's not about you. And now his goal for us is that we would make sweet harmony together for the glory of God. I use this illustration in uh, Harvest Essentials, but I, remember, I recognize many of you haven't been to Harvest Essentials for maybe four or five or six years. Let me remind you of this. When God calls us together, it's, he, he calls us to that we'll be on the same page that the world will sit up and take notice of who we are and our togetherness in Jesus Christ. Remember his high priestly prayer in John 17 at the end? He says, Father, may they be one just as we are one. May they be one so the world will see my glory, our glory. God's designed for us as a church is not to call us into a body of believers to then be individual, individualistic in our mentality, but to be together that we might make sweet harmony for the glory of God. My wife, uh, this, is the, this is the illustration, my wife uh, taught school for many years up until just a, a few years ago when we had started having kids, and even after kids a few years she taught school, and being from Quebec, she taught French and music because of her music background, and so she usually taught junior high, French and music, the two subjects most junior hires hate, which was always a fun endeavor for her. One of the things that she would do, though, every Christmas, as mandated by the school, is have the Christmas, again, the Christmas musical, whatever. And so they'd work so hard from September to December. And, and I remember that was the one event that I'd have to go to to show my support for my wife. I'm not a music guy, but you'd go. And, and it was always entertaining for me because uh, you'd watch the... You watch the band warm up in the you know, junior, high and senior, junior high boys and girls. They're a little distracted, but in the warm-ups, you know, they'd all be like trying to, you know, she'd play her little like whatever it is, B flat or A flat or C flat or sharp, whatever they are, I don't know, but whatever it was, they'd all try and get on that tune. They'd be tuning, they'd tune this section, then this section, then this section, then this section, and they'd all be ready to go. And usually for the first song or two, it sounded fantastic because the kids were so focused. And usually around the middle of the second or third song, there'd be one kid that'd be like, all right, I'm bored of this whole together thing. And now I'm doing my own thing. And there'd be one clown in the group that would either get distracted or just start to think that they want to be the center of the show and like, you know, the, the trombone. Like, and everyone else starts giggling and they start waving at their moms. And by the end, it was just a train wreck. And I think it's a good illustration for how we are as a church to be together. We're, we're to be tuned to the conductor, Jesus Christ. We're to keep our eyes on the conductor, each aim to play our own parts, not striving to be the center of attention or the clown of the show, but just trying to follow through that we can actually do make great harmony for the glory of God. That's really the heart of what this whole idea to be unified together as one another is that we would show the world the melody of Jesus in our lives. And get this, harmony doesn't just please the heart of God. This oneness demonstrates God's character. Ultimately, in that music production, what it would do is reflect whether my wife was a good teacher or not, the whole reality. She'd come home from those so discouraged and frustrated, man, I'm such a horrible teacher, it never works. And yet our unity as believers is to reflect the glory of God. If you think about this, oneness demonstrates God's character. It's just like a, come on, guys, get along, get along. Oneness actually demonstrates the reality of God. That's why Jesus prayed that prayer in John 17. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three distinct persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. You will never see Trinity, the actual word Trinity in the Bible, but it's there all over the place. Matthew chapter 28, you know, go and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? 
teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. They're there. Jesus' baptism, it's clear that there's three, three in one is a Trinity God. The sun coming out of the water, the dove descending from heaven, representing the Holy Spirit, the voice saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. God, the God that we love, the God that saved us, does not consist of parts, nor can he be divided into parts. God is completely together. He's unified, meaning he is undivided and indivisible. And get this, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in perfect harmony and unity together. There's no disputes. There's no power plays in the Trinity. There's no trying to one-up each other. No jealousy, no rivalries. Why am I telling you this? Because it's important to see that this isn't just God's call on us because he's decided that he wants us to be something that he's not. It's actually God's call on us because this actually truly represents the character and the nature and the heart of God. And God wants us to reflect his oneness to the world. God wants the world to see our perfect, awesome, triune God. Not just in what we tell them and teach them, but how do they want to see it? In how we live our lives. And what happens inside the church should be drastically different than what happens outside the church. In those clubs and on those sports teams and in the workplace. Anybody can be united around some common interest. That's kind of easy. Not everybody can actually be truly united around Jesus Christ and live in harmony together. That can only happen by the Spirit of God as God works in us. So Paul's appealing to them, not just for their own joy and well-being, but also that the, the world around might see the true reality of Jesus, that people on the outside will stop and go like, what is going on in that place? All these diverse backgrounds and opinions and and. And yet they're getting along. Man, that's awesome. That's unique. It's not common. There must be something to the message that they preach. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. And there be no divisions among you that, that you might be united in the same mind and the same judgment for your joy so the world can see and God can get the glory. It's quite a simple call, really. It's not rocket science like any of these one another's. It's not like, wow, I've never heard that before. Pastor, this is revolutionary. But here's what's revolutionary is that we actually take it to heart and strive to live within it for the fame of our Lord Jesus. It's one thing to understand 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10. To get a little more of understanding the depth of the meaning is a totally other thing to live this out. But realize this, God has put this in here not just for us to understand it. Like, oh, that's pretty cool. I never thought of division like that before. That's neat. But he's put this in here that it's going to change our lives and transform the way we think and the way we interact with each other. Get this, point number two, only two points to this sermon. Point number two, to live in unity with one another is my calling. Look at 
This is God's calling on us as believers. Oh, no, 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 my calling was to Jesus. Uh, No, 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 your calling is to Jesus, but then also to his church family, to the body of believers to live it out. The one another's are pretty radical. The one another's aren't for the faint of heart. The one another's actually are impossible if it's just left to our own human desires and will. It's impossible. That's why there's so much strife in families and struggles in churches. That's why there's so many wars in the world because we cannot possibly do this on our own. But in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, with all of us, with our eyes fixed on the conductor, this is possible for the glory of God. But here's what it takes. It takes us getting our eyes off of ourselves. Here's the application for this. Most of it's gonna be application this morning because I think the concept's pretty simple. It takes us getting our eyes off of ourselves and our eyes onto Jesus. It takes us from moving from this consumerism mentality in church to a commitment to God himself. That I wanna reflect the glory of God through our church. It moves us from being independent to interdependent upon God and each other, which is quite often an uncomfortable place for most of us to get, and yet it's the call of God on our lives. What's the word of the day? Unity. What's the word of the day? It's unity. As I unpack this for you, I want to tell you a couple things it does not mean, because I know this can be taken a whole lot of different directions. Let me, I'm just going to try and clarify in for you, what, uh, zone in on what this means to actually live out 1 Corinthians 1.10. Here's what it does not mean to start with, okay? Here's what I'm not saying today, and I know that some of you are going to leave here with all kinds of things rattling through your heads. You're going to hear part of what I say and part of what I don't say, and you're already drawing conclusions, so please hear me out. I'm going to say this the best way I know how. Here's what it doesn't mean. This does not mean it's a fellowship at all costs call to the body of believers. It doesn't mean that, okay, I'm supposed to be unified, so now I throw aside all my discernment, I throw aside all my doctrine, I push aside all the discipleship that I've had before, and I I forget about doing what's right and walking in righteousness. We We just gotta be friends and get along. That's not the call of God on his church. It'd be the easier call, but that's not the call of God on his church. Sometimes we do have to see divisions because we can't compromise on the truth for friendship and fellowship. Agreed? We can't compromise on what's right so that we can all get along. Our first calling is to who? It's to God. Our second calling is to each other. In fact, in my break, I read a lot through uh, the Timothys, First and Second Timothy and Titus, because those are the pastoral epistles, and I'm trying to even wrap my mind around further. What's it mean to be a pastor? You know what it says over and over in the pastoral epistles? Speak the truth. Speak the truth. Bring people into truth. Don't waver from the truth. In season and out of season, what do you do? You still preach the truth. Matthew chapter 10 tells us that even the truth is sometimes going to cause a, a mother and a daughter to have a Split. It's sometimes going to be painful. Sometimes families aren't going to see eye to eye on Jesus and they're going to cause different things to happen. 
So I'm not saying it's a fellowship at all costs. It's just, it's not biblical at all. We're also not saying in this whole thing, it's a unithink mentality. Unithink means that we are like little clones and little robots, and it's like, yes, sir, no, sir. Four pillars, three W's. It's just not even possible for you to think. It's not even possible my own little family of five. I tried for a couple years after we were married to get my wife to think just like me. That was painful for both of us. It's not healthy. What is you to think? That's a cult. That's dangerous. That's where people drink Kool-Aid in, right? Where no one expresses their opinion, and that's not it at all. But yet in my family, I've learned that we can have unity at home, even though we all think about things radically differently in some areas. We focus on what's important, and we go with that, and we learn from each other and grow from each other and the other ones. God's made us different on purpose. There's something greater at stake than my own happiness or getting my own point across. So it's not unithink at all. It's not fellowship at all costs. It's not unithink. Here's what it does mean. It means that we're all going to focus on the common goals and strive to work together to accomplish them for the glory of God. You, you, can, you can write this down. This isn't like some dictionary definition. This is one I just came up with as I studied. So if it's not super intelligent, whatever. Write it down anyways, please. It makes me feel good. Living out a common belief, agreeing on common goals, and determining to do whatever it takes to accomplish them together for the glory of God. It's choosing to focus on Christ and what he wants our church to be and the goals and objectives of our church more than even my own preferences. One of the things that's big around here I'm learning uh, over the last seven years is rowing. And I've never really watched rowing before, maybe once or twice, but you know, you sit by Martindale Pond, or you go down to a well, and you just kind of sit there for a second and watch rowing. For you who are into rowing, I'm sorry, it's kind of boring for me. But I know it's not for everybody, it's not a diss, I'm just telling you where I'm coming from. But there's something, there's something as you watch a little bit, there's something interesting about rowing as well. And because you have the, uh, the coxswain, I guess they call it, uh, sitting either in the, in the bow or the stern of the boat, and, and they're the only ones without a paddle. And if you watch enough, they're all rowing in complete unison. And I'm like, that's pretty fun. You watch it. It's, like, it's almost like a choreographed thing, right? They're all rowing in complete unison. And those paddles, it kind of mesmerizes you, right? It'd be a great place to, it's kind of like watching NASCAR. It could put you to sleep really quickly on a Sunday afternoon. And why are they, why, how can they be so in unison? It's because they're all listening to that one voice who's not just calling out the stroke, but also steering the ship, <coughs> from what I understand. They're all not thinking about themselves. They're just trying to accomplish the goal of getting to the finish line first. And I think that's really a definition of, of unity. We all have the same desires, the same goals, and we're willing to do whatever it takes to get to the finish line and, and make sure we get to the finish line. So practically, how does this play out? Here's a couple things that I want to unpack for you of how we can actually live out this call to unity. That we can listen to the voice of God, that we can actually get to the finish line for the glory of God. Number one is this. It's choosing to major on the majors and minor on the minors. 
It's choosing to major on the majors and minor on the minors when it comes to doctrinal things. You know what, what the biggest source of argument in the church is? It's interesting, isn't it? Doctrine. The, the things that we cling to because we've been saved become the things of, of contention because we maybe come to understand them differently. How many churches have split over doctrinal disunity? How detrimental it is for the church to be all over the map with what we believe. And that's why we do Discover Harvest. That's why we do Harvest Essentials, to help you understand this is what we believe as a church. And we're not the be all and the end all when it comes to what we believe, but this is what we're convicted by, and this is where we're going. And, and we're encouraging you through those courses. If you can get on the ship, awesome. We'd love to have you on the ship. If, if it's not the place you're going, then we encourage you to find another place to, to worship because we want you to be in a place where you can not have these doctrinal disunities among the church. I shared with you before that I lived through a church split, one of the most painful experiences of my life as a youth pastor. All over godly discussions that were so far from godly, but done in the name of Jesus. And so we have to, I think, understand how we can choose to unify on the things that matter and agree to disagree on the things that don't matter. I read an article a couple weeks ago by Albert Moeller, the president of Southern Seminary, and he talks about how a church needs to develop a theological triage just like ERs have. You go to the ER room and, and right away they assess you, maybe not as quickly as you'd like, <laughs> Canada, but they assess you, and they right away they're like, "Hey, are you level? I don't know how they do it in the ERs. Are they level like like get them to the get them to the operating table? Are they like, hey, they can sit in the waiting room for five or six or seven or ten hours?" And right away they're assessing what's most important, who's the most important case, and who's not. Well, he's suggesting that churches ought to have a theological triage. In other words, we have to understand, hey, what's the most important things that we can't give up for unity, and what's the things that we can sacrifice for the sake of everybody else. And so he proposes some things of which I've kind of modified and, and added to, but, but I just want to help you understand, like here's some things that we as a church cannot sacrifice, so we'll call these first level, first level um, things or non-negotiables, uh, doctrines that are essential to the Christian faith that we just can't negotiate on. Here's some of them. You can put the whole list up, uh, Doug, if you want, and I'll just talk through it here. The authority of the Bible, we just can't negotiate on this. The Old and New Testament is actually God's living words. We can't negotiate on this. Well, actually, I don't think God really meant that. He did mean it, literally, in, in everything he said. There's a heaven, there's a hell. God created. There's sin, there's righteousness. We, we believe it all. We can't negotiate on the authority of God's word. We can't negotiate on the Trinity. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the triune God, as I kind of walked you through already, we can't, we can't negotiate on those things because it's so clear in the scriptures. Take that away, we lose the, the essentials of the Christian faith. We can't negotiate on this, the full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. That, that Jesus was born of a virgin, fully God and fully man, and, and he lived a perfectly obedient life to die the death that, that we should have died as an atoning sacrifice for my sins, that all who turn to him through faith and repentance will have eternal life, freedom from the curse of sin and eternal life both now and forever. We can't negotiate on those things. We can't negotiate from scriptures. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is by grace alone, through faith alone. It's not things we do. We can't, we can't, uh, we can't get away from the biblical mandate of, of it's by God's grace. It's through faith. 
some things that we're just going to, honestly, as, as elders, we're just going to stand up for and not negotiate on because we can't. And there's some things in your life that you should not negotiate for the sake of unity. But there are some things that I think God has allowed the diversity in the body of believers for us, second and third order things that we can negotiate on or we can agree to disagree on or that shouldn't be a cause for I can't fellowship and worship together. There's some of those things that I think, but I think we get all mixed up. We start making secondary things, primary things, and primary things, secondary things, and that's where the division, this is what Paul is writing to the church about. And so here's some negotiables, I think, in doctrines that I think we, I want to encourage you and, and maybe even a little bit exhort you just to consider this morning. And you know, one of them, I think, that I've heard a lot of in the past year is, is the, the process of salvation. And so we know that we can't, there's only one name under heaven by which we must be saved. That's the name of Jesus. And what theologians have debating, been debating for years is how exactly we come, the process of salvation. Is that simply by my choice or is that all God's choice? I grew up in a church that I never even heard about. It's all my choice. And I had to think this thing through and figure it out. And if I chose, then that's great. As I studied the scriptures, I've come to a completely different understanding of that over the last 20 years. And I think it's all God. I really believe it's scriptural. It's all God. It's nothing but God. And do I have a choice? Yes, but it's only as God works in me. And so that's sort of where, that's not, that's not sort of, that's where our church has stood from the beginning of this. And we've laid it out for you in Discover Harvest and Harvest Essentials that, that we believe that salvation is completely an act of God, that I am totally depraved. I can't even make the choice on my own. It's all God. He seeks me, he comes, he grabs me, and he somehow puts faith in my heart through his powerful Holy Spirit, and he regenerates my soul, and that gives me the choice to accept him as Lord and Savior. We believe that. We stand on that even yet today. And yet we also realize as elders that there is people in our church and there's people in other faith movements that maybe don't have the exact same view on the process of salvation that we have. And the question is, should that exclude them from fellowship with us? Is that one of the things that we're like, nope, you don't believe this, so you're, you're a heretic or you're out there and you can't have any fellowship with me? I certainly hope not. You know Why? Because we're going to be fellowshipping with a lot of people with differing opinions in heaven forever. There's some great men of the faith that have taught us many things that stand on either side of that whole debate. And the the bottom line is, I think this is, even think of my own upbringing. There's some great people in my upbringing that, that are going to be rejoicing with me in heaven forever, even though they don't understand it as the way that I think they should or ought to. They're there because it comes down to what? Repentance and faith in who? Jesus Christ. That's how it all happens, quite honestly. It's somewhat of a mystery. We do know that God is the key element in the whole thing. We do know that we have a choice in the whole thing. And, and many people say it's like two tracks heading for heaven. It's, it's, it's like if you look at a train track, they seem to be apart, and in the distance they kind of come together, and it seems to head in the same direction. And I think if we're going to live out last week's sermon on humility, this is a great place to start with realizing that maybe my opinions aren't the be-all and the end-all in this. It doesn't mean we sacrifice our convictions. It means that we're open to also fellowshipping with, fellowshipping with others of different 
opinions. As long as we're not compromising on the main things. I think we have lots to learn from each other in some of those differing opinions. I encourage you to be convinced of your opinion and defend it biblically and have some of those debates in a healthy way, in an encouraging way, in a way that's going to spur the other person on to get back in the word of God and, and study for themselves and come to the... Like, again, we're not compromising where we stand as a church on this. You hear me clearly? Say, yes, pastor. Thank you. This helps me know. Sometimes those, not, those blind, like, you don't know. So I'm not saying we're changing or we're, we're going anywhere different. We're solidless. I'm going to preach it. I'm going to proclaim it. But at the same point, I don't think we should exclude others who don't think exactly the same way we do because the Bible says we shouldn't. How do we live this out? There's maybe some tension. It maybe gets a little messy. But it sure causes us to grow and to be strengthened. Process of salvation is one of those things. End times. Haven't heard this debate for a while, but there's been so many debates over end times. And well, we just can't fellowship together because you think Jesus is coming back before the tribulation. Are you ridiculous or what? Oh, no, no, no. I got my four verses. He's coming in the middle of the tribulation. If you don't see them, you're a moron. Beginning, middle, what are you talking about? It's clearly after. There's no doubt it's after. Any reasonable, you get where I'm going, right? What do we know from Scripture? For sure, all of us. What do we know? Jesus is coming back. 100%. Is he coming back? Absolutely. Do I hope he comes back pre-trib? Absolutely. 100%. Who likes pain? Even three and a half years of it, it's not going to be fun, right? But ultimately, what should we be encouraging each other to do? Not fight over when he's coming back because it says clearly, no one knows the time or the hour. That means no one knows the time or the hour. So instead, what we should be spending our time on is encouraging, in the biblical sense, encouraging one another to be ready for Christ's return. And if there's suffering, I think there might be a little bit of suffering. I'm not giving my opinion away, but I think there might be a little bit of suffering. Be ready to stand strong. Because even before he's coming, there's going to be suffering, right? There's suffering right now in this world. Let's forget about the silly debates and encourage others to be strong in the Lord and be ready for his return. Here's another one, the difficult text. I've heard of so many godly men angry and debating over difficult texts and they just don't get it, they just don't get it. Well, honestly, there's some texts that I don't get. I'm sorry I'm your pastor, I don't know all the answers. I'm sorry if I just burst your bubble. We do our best, but ultimately sometimes at the end of the day, is it worth arguing about? Is it worth like throwing up our walls and ripping apart the body over secondary and third order issues? What do you think Paul means in 1 Corinthians 1.10? Oh yeah, go ahead. Make, that, make, make your thing the main thing. Keep the majors the majors and allow the minors to be minors. There's some non-negotiables and some negotiables in this whole unity thing. I think many times in the church, we're supposed to be the most unified and we can be the most diversified on our theological issues. And I think the people the world around us is like, what in the world? Don't they worship Jesus? My workplace is like that. It takes humility. It takes allowing God to work in us to to teach us even through others. You know why I think God allows differences in the church? To sharpen us and to strengthen us for the glory of God. 
Let's be honest, every one of those times we come up with someone we disagree with, what does it make us do? Get back to the word of God. And, and even, even the polar opposites, they, 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 there's a tension line in between those polar opposites and they keep us on the, in the playing field. If it wasn't for somebody like in that tension that we jump off this theological cliff and other people jump off this theological cliff, that tension actually keeps us in the game. So we need to be thankful for differing opinions and realize that God has brought differing opinions on purpose if we were all programmed robots, it'd be easy to have unity. We wouldn't have to be sanctified. And that God has not allowed that so we can actually grow in the knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ. That's the first one. Choose to major on the majors and minor on the minors. Here's the second one. Choose to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. Choose to be part of the solution rather than be part of the problem. I'm not saying we have problems in our church, but man, we're all sinful people, so there's great potential, isn't there? No, not in your heart. I guess I'm just in my heart. <laughs> There's great potential for problems. So I think if we all had this focus, we could live out 1 Corinthians 1.10 that, that I want to be part of the solution in, in things and not part of the problem. I want to keep my, my ears tuned to the, to the captain or the orchestra, orchestra leader or the, the, the coxswain. I want to keep my ears attuned to them. I want to keep my eyes on the prize. And I want to make sure that my oar is not getting out of line, no matter who else's oar is getting out of line. Here's biblically, the one and others don't just say be unified. Here's some more one and others that I'm just going to give you four quick points under this one to help you understand how God's called us to think about being part of the solution rather than part of the problem. First one is this, positivity over negativity. Positivity over Negativity. This is what it says in James 5, 9. Do not grumble against one another. See, that's one another right there. Well, one another's are only positive, aren't they? Well, not in James 5, 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers or sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. John 6, 43. Don't grumble amongst yourselves. What is grumbling? What is grumbling? It's just negative, isn't it? Even the word sounds negative. Grumble. That's what my son does when he has to take out the garbage. Grumbles. Just brings everything down. And What's grumbling? It's just negativity. I don't like I don't like it, so I'm going to grumble and make sure everybody else knows I don't like it. Or they know where I stand. What's grumbling? It's like, I'm not happy, so I want everyone else to be not happy too, because somehow there's joy in having misery amongst the grumpiness. Misery loves company. What's grumbling? It's those little offhand of comments of like, just being honest, but yeah, seen that. What do you think of that? Does that ever do anything productive, except for maybe making you feel better about yourself because somebody else agrees. Does it? It doesn't just apply to church. It applies to your home, too, and your workplace, wherever you want to apply. But this is applying to church, to believers in the church. Grumbling. How about we do this in striving to honor Jesus? Instead of Grumbling. Let's look for encouraging and positive, positive things to say. Anybody can find faults. I can walk into any place and find a fault. That's not hard. It doesn't take the Spirit of God to do that. 
But sometimes it's hard to find the positive. It takes the Spirit of God to help you see the positives in situations and in people. And it's, not, it's not not giving your opinion for sure. It's not like keep your mouth closed and don't give your opinion. It's giving your opinion, though, in a way that's going to be positive, that's going to actually help build a solution rather than be part of the problem. Instead of looking for the change, be the change. And let your life set the culture of the church in the direction of which you desire it to go. I was trying to imagine a church where everyone was positive and not negative, and that's probably going to be heaven. But then I try to imagine a church where everyone was striving to be positive, instead of let the flesh taking over and being negative. That'd be a church I'd want to be a part of where the glory of God would be for sure. How about this one? Building up rather than tearing down, sort of along the same lines, but listen to some other one another's in the scripture. Galatians 5.15. Remember one-third of the one another is about unity? Here's some of these one-third of the one another is about unity. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you yourselves are not consumed by. In other words, you start biting other people, they're going to bite you back for sure. James 4.11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers or sisters. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. This is straightforward stuff. I'm not trying to mince words here because Jesus doesn't. The Bible doesn't. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. You hear that? Don't be speaking evil against each other. If you do, you're actually making yourself the judge of the law. Don't be talking smack about each other, even sharing your concerns with other people that are negative or got a little prayer request for you over so-and-so. You might have noticed too, wink, wink, ha-ha. Don't mean to gossip, but we really got to pray for him. Knowing that somehow the other person is thinking of that person now in a negative light. And again, you walk away going like, man, I am so spiritual. Because we're not like them. Even if it's something that you know is true. I'm not gossiping because I know it's true. Oh, I know it's true about them. I'm just sharing. How about if you know something true about someone that you feel compelled to share with somebody else? Why don't you share it with them first? Especially if it's a sin thing. Like that, that's Matthew 18, right? If you know someone's done something against you, you know someone's like, that, that's just being a part of the body, sharing with them first that they can grow from it and be changed by Jesus through it. Building up rather than tearing down. Every time you're tempted to tear somebody down, why don't you pray for that person? And ask that God see the positive, help you see the positive. Why don't you try and befriend that person and be a true Christian brother or sister of that person instead of what tends to come from the opposite, creating more distance by letting things build in your heart. How about this, speaking about others in the same way you would want others to speak about you? This is living in unity. Man, again, if we all strive for this, if we all strive for this, what a beautiful place this would be. I'm not saying it's not, but I think there's room to grow in all these things. Here's a couple more quick ones. Forgiveness over vengeance. Whole sermon coming on this in a few weeks, so I'm not going to give away the whole punchlines, but get this. Seek that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. 
1 Thessalonians 5.15. But you have no idea what they've done or how they've hurt me or, or, or what. Forgiveness is part of the essentials of being a believer. We've been forgiven much by the Lord. How do you know you're truly forgiven when you forgive somebody else? Oh, how petty we can be. As, but they didn't say hi to me, Pastor. Maybe they didn't see you. Or they said this, and man, it's been gnawing at the core of my heart for the last three weeks or three years, some people, 40 years. How about like letting it go and forgiving them for such a minor little offense? I can't do it. Well, then the Bible says you might not understand the forgiveness of God at all. And you're surely not walking in it. You live together with anyone in Christian community for more than a year, you're going to have asked for forgiveness many times, and you're going to have forgiven many times if you're in a healthy place. Refusal to do that brings down the church in every way, shape, and form, and the enemy has his way. I can feel the whole sermon in two weeks coming on now, so I better stop. <laughs> Unity, love, and forgive. Vengeance is whose? Not mine. Last one, contentment over envy. Contentment over envy. Get this. Galatians 5, 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Two one another's in one sentence. Kill two birds with one stone. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Even happens in the church. They have what I wish I had, the position, or, or they have the gifts, or, or I'm envious of their friendships, and, and so I get all bent out of shape, and every time I see them, I see them, in and in I start envying, and I just, I just don't like them because of, I don't know why, I just don't like them. Envy. I wish I was more like them, and I'm not, or I wish they were more like me, and they're not. Envy. Envy, envy, envy. Oh, being content with who God's made you to be in the position that God's given you within the greater world, but also within the church, and, and just decide, I'm just going to play my part with joy, and I'm going to thank God for, for where I sit and where I stand and where I don't sit and where I don't stand, because maybe I couldn't even handle that other position. Or maybe it take me to bad places. I'm just going to trust God with my life and live in the joy that he has given me, and I'm going to be content and satisfied in one place, and that is in Jesus Christ alone. And I put my trust in one person, that is God himself. Sorry, one more, one more. I said those last one, one more. Peace over dissension. Living in peace over dissension. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19, there's six things God hates, seven things God abhors. What's the last one? One who sows discord among his brothers and sisters. One who sows discord in the church. One who deliberately tries to stir the pot. They know they're doing it and somehow deep down they love it. I don't get those people to be honest. But it brings some sort of satisfaction to the heart to see everybody else. They, they love the confrontation, love the discord and they're smiling. They're like, oh, they put on the spiritual face here but they're smiling all the way home. Get this, God's not smiling at that. Six things he hates, seven things he, it's a big word, abhors. Disgusts him. Makes his teeth clench. Gets angry about. People who deliberately stir the pot. 
for who knows what reason. Anybody, again, can do that. It doesn't take a Jesus-centered, spirit-filled person. It, it, it takes a Jesus-centered, spirit-filled person to not stir the pot. Any wicked, fleshly person can stir dissension. That's the flesh. That's of the evil one. Catch yourself doing that and you should be like, oh my goodness, God, I need to get on my knees and pray. I need to get on my small group praying for me too. It might not be a reflection of everybody else's hearts even though you convinced yourself of that. It might be a reflection of, it's not, it's a reflection of your own heart. To have this twisted way of wanting to sow dissension and have people mad at each other and get sides and all those things. I've lived through those churches. It still makes me cry sometimes to think about all that went down. It doesn't make sense. As Christians, we're better than that because God's given us his spirit and his son to make us more like him. Ever find yourself sowing dissension? Shut it down. Ever hear someone else sowing dissension? You know what shuts it down quickly? I'm not listening to that. Dissension. Shut your ears and shut it down. Life is too short. Unity is too important. Remember what we're going after? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. You know what we're going after? Showing the world the character of God. And living in unity is one of the greatest ways, as Jesus said in John 17, that people see Jesus. I even know after this kind of sermon, I'm sure there's going to be some ruffles, feathers. We're faithful to God, right? We're not here to please man. We're here to please God. I'm sure there's some conviction going on. I'm sure there's all kinds of things going on. I encourage you at the end of this to just sit before the Lord, even right now in your own heart, and say, God is... Am I contributing to a positive, God-honoring atmosphere here? Or am I contributing to the opposite? Even unknowingly by majoring on the wrong things or being negative over positive, tearing down over building up, living in vengeance over forgiveness, envying over contentment, loving dissension over peace. We know what God desires. That's why he gave us his son that we no longer have to live in the ways of the world and the ways of the flesh. God desires that we get low and that we simply do this. Agree that there might be no divisions among you but you might be united in the same mind and the same judgment for the glory of God. Let me pray. Father, I think of Joni Erickson's Tata quote, believers are never told to become one. We are already one and expected to act like it. Father, I pray that would be the case. Thank you for the way you've preserved our church over the first six and a half years, God. We know it's gonna take more work in the future. 
We know it's going to be hard. We know there's going to be things that crop up. Would you give us a spirit of humility, a spirit of love, a spirit of, of servanthood, a spirit of encouragement? Would you give us a spirit of unity in this place that we might go forward over the next 65 years for the glory of God? Father, I pray that nothing would get into kill and steal and dissuade us from your plan and your purposes. God, would you watch over our individual hearts, mine included, O oh Lord? We're all prone to some of these things. We're so stinking sinful, it makes us frustrated. God, would you help us today to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. Would you be our everything, O oh Lord? Would we recognize that this life is not for ourselves, it's for you and for your purposes and your glory. And God, would you help us show the world what it is to truly be saved in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, would your spirit reign on this place? Would you be honored and would you be glorified? God, if there's convicting work to be done, may we not quickly rush out of this thinking it's for somebody else. But may you renew us today, Lord. Lord, if we're already walking this, would you strengthen us for greater days ahead as we seek to let the world know of our Lord and Savior Jesus. In your holy name.